0: Oh, hi everybody, Ezra Levant here. I am the boss at Rebel News, and it's my pleasure to be in the chair for the live stream. We do the live stream quite often with my colleagues, uh, Sheila Gunn-Reed, David Menzies, they're the regular hosts. We have other talent joining from time to time. The live stream was a tradition we started early during the pandemic because there was so much to talk about. And I myself was stranded because I was on that no-fly list for not being jabbed. And um, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the banter, the back and forth. I enjoyed the interaction with our viewers. Uh, Back then, before we were demonetized by YouTube, it was actually a meaningful source of revenue for us, the Super Chats. YouTube quickly saw to that. But we do it still because we have things to say. Because we like the feedback, because not everything can fit into our daily lineup of my show, Sheila's show, our produced videos. So it's a good way to deal with short little mini things uh, that I think deserve a comment or two uh, before we move on. And one of the things I'm most excited about uh, in these dark days is the fact that we provide the other side of the story when so much of the media is so clearly in spin mode for Hamas. It's hard to believe. I mean, all this talk about fact-checking and misinformation and disinformation, and yet the state broadcaster in Canada, the CBC, the state broadcaster in the UK, the BBC, the state broadcaster in Australia, the ABC, and I mention them because they're part of this Trust alliance or whatever they call it. We're the trustworthy people. Uh, Don't talk to our competitors. Don't listen to them. We're the trustworthy ones. Uh, What you hear from the other guys from the independence is misinformation. These first rate, these premium, these legacy, these trustworthy media are the ones who refuse to say the word terrorist when talking about terrorists, terrorists by any measure. What they do is terrifying and terrorizing. They attack civilians to get a political outcome. That really, They use violence and the threat of violence um, to get a political outcome. That is a dictionary definition of terrorism. You can see in, in, with your eyes and feel in your gut that the torture, rape, humiliation, the, the burning, the burning of human beings is terrifying and terrorizing. And if you still are not quite convinced that that's terrorism, if you're so smart that you think that there must be some way to finesse this, um, well actually, in Canada and in many other countries in the world, Hamas is legally defined as a proscribed terrorist entity. So imagine being the CBC, I'm, I'm talking about the CBC story where they where they use this phrase, Efron, Olivia, I'm not sure if you can find it. I tweeted a bit about it yesterday. The CBC kept saying that a Canadian woman died, uh, what was the phrase they used? Can you call it my tweets on that? They were saying some, she was kidnapped, yeah. Um, okay, now here, they've changed the headline. You see that? Family of Israeli Canadian woman killed by Hamas Heartbroken outrage so they changed this headline scroll to the bottom. Let's see if they even have the the decency to have an Editor's note scroll down all the way to the bottom Did they have an editors note because this was a story? They don't have an editors note scroll down a little bit more. Oh my god um, <laughs> See if you can find my tweets on the subject That's the corrected headline, but for the first full day They kept using this strange wording. It was something like uh, she died. Go to search um, from colon Ezra Levant and then put in um, the word French because I, I tweeted about, yeah, there you go. Can you pump that up? Thanks for sorry. I'm throwing this at you in real time. I salute Efron and Olivia who have to follow my meandering stream of consciousness. But the CBC kept saying this weird phrase um, has died. At look at that, the Jewish Fed. This is their first headline. So they we just checked their live website, and you can see after a full day. They finally caved in. But here's what they were saying. This is the trusted network. This is the government network. This is Trudeau's network. This is the legacy media. This is the biggest budgeted news source in Canada, part of that international group of fact-checkers. The Jewish Federation of Ottawa has confirmed Adi Vital Kaplun, who has family ties to Ottawa, is dead. So the passive tent, she's dead. As a result of the conflict in Israel. That's a pretty weird, passive, anonymous tense. So she's dead as a result of the conflict. That's like that classic phrase, mistakes were made. Oh, um, by whom? What mistakes? And and that wasn't the only (laughs) network that did that. The BBC used the same language. They're all using it. She's not dead as a result of the conflict. She was murdered by someone. We don't know the name of the actual terrorist, but we know the name of the group. It's called Hamas. And the conflict, conflict, so this is, that, that could theoretically imply that she was killed by the Israeli army or something. What a cowardly misinformation, disinformation. They knew exactly how and why she was murdered. They didn't just find out today, oh, she was murdered by Hamas. And, and they actually, can you go to CBC News Twitter feed? Because they tweeted some little editorial correction, and they lied about the lie. So their first lie is that they didn't know how, they, she died as a result of the conflict. And then, here we go, look at this. Our original post for this story was based on information available at the time more precise information has since become available. We have removed the original post. Well, first of all, we just saw that they don't have an editor's note on that original post. They're trying to hide their skullduggery. But this is a second lie to cover up the first lie. Because the first lie was that she was dead as a result of the conflict when they knew it was a Hamas attack. But go to their second lie again for a second. Yeah, Scroll down a bit. Are you saying that when they wrote this story yesterday yesterday was wednesday saturday sunday monday tuesday wednesday five days after she was kidnapped by hamas that that we didn't know who was doing it that we didn't know who did it why are you lying the whole world knew we knew within hours they're lying more precise information has since become available Really? Well, you didn't give us more precise information. What's the name of the terrorist? Or when and where exactly was she killed? That's the only information that could perhaps be new, but that's not true. They actually don't know that information. They always knew it was Hamas. It was not an accident that they got it wrong. It was a deliberate disinformation. You know, these are all made up words. First time I heard the word disinformation, was when I was a young teenager during the Cold War. And, uh, you know, I was a teenager and I thought fighter jets were cool. And so my dad got me a subscription to a magazine, that's in the olden days before email. So in the 1980s, my family, my dad subscribed for me to a magazine called Aviation Week and Space Technology, just because I thought it was really cool to look at fighter jets from around the world. and. I discovered the word disinformation because they would talk in this magazine about the U.S. military deliberately releasing false information about the capabilities of their own jets to lie on purpose so that the Russians, or who you know, mainly the Soviets, um, would not know what was really going on. They would be misled. They would leak false things. Um. That's disinformation, deliberately misinforming someone. So misinformation is you just got something wrong. Disinformation is you do something wrong on purpose. That's the only time in my entire life I had ever heard that word was in the case of the U.S. military deliberately planting false facts about their own capabilities to trick the Soviets. 30 years go by, and the, and the word is exhumed from disuse, revived, and deployed again by the CBC. The CBC uses the word disinformation every day. They call anyone they disagree with disinformation, as if you're deliberately lying, but they're the only ones deliberately telling the truth. But I have just shown you in that story and that tweet, not misinformation, they didn't make a mistake they didn't mistakenly not know how she died. They knew. They deliberately lied just the same way every single day they deliberately lie about Hamas and not use the word terrorist. They are the number one source of disinformation in the country. Dead as a result of the conflict? Huh. <laughs> I showed you yesterday, the New York Times, one of their reporters accidentally used the word terrorist. Oh, my God, there was a panic there. And, and they changed it quickly to gunmen. Hamas gunmen. Some of them had guns. Some of them had knives. Some of them raped. Some of them burnt. So they actually, the New York Times actually made their publication less accurate because they were Hamas terrorists, and by changing it to gunmen, well, that's not quite accurate. Some of them did have guns, but some of them did not. Some used other weapons. What atrocious people we have. You know, if the CBC were around, in the 1930s and 40s, they wouldn't have used the word Nazi to describe Hitler. Oh, that's too pejorative, that's too judgmental, that's taking sides, imagine. And actually, by the way, the New York Times was atrocious during the Holocaust. The New York Times was owned by a Jewish family. And they were worried that they would seem too Jewy if they were too anti-Hitler, so they weren't. They toned down their criticism of Hitler. And by the way, before that, a decade before that, they sent a reporter to the Soviet Union um, Durante was his name, and he lied and he covered up for the, the crimes of the Soviet Union understand, uh, under under Stalin. Let me just make sure I get the name, uh, yeah, Walter Durante. Walter Durante was a journalist who was the Moscow bureau chief for the New York Times. And so he had an important job, yeah, exactly right. Uh, He won the Pulitzer in 32. Uh, Here, I'm just going to read from what you found on the screen there. Durante, one of the most famous correspondents of the day, won the prize, the Pulitzer Prize for 13 articles written in 1931, analyzing the Soviet Union under Stalin. Times correspondents and others have since largely discredited his coverage. He was essentially a spy who was basically writing love letters to Stalin. He won a Pulitzer for it. That's the New York Times. And that oh, well, geez, we didn't know. You didn't know. You didn't know. You didn't know that Hamas was a terrorist group. You just didn't know. Your own eyes didn't tell you that. That's why I like Twitter. There were so many horrific and horrifying things that I've seen on Twitter in the last few days. It, it truly dented me emotionally. I felt depressed by it because I, I don't think in my entire life I'd seen anything so horrific. But it's good to know. I think the West would have benefited from knowing about Stalin's crimes, especially during the Holodomor, the engineered famine in Ukraine, where the Soviets deliberately destroyed the farming sector and millions starved. Instead, the New York Times covered it up. I think the world should have known the truth about the Holocaust. I think the images are shocking, but the world ought to have known. Here we are in 2023 in the world not on the CBC, but the world that has access to Twitter, now called X, has seen the truth about it. And we're shocked. But even worse, some people are not shocked. And I find that, the scary part, I find it scary that when people see absolute acts of barbarism in real time, in full color, in high def, they shrug and say, well, you have to understand the context. They would have said the same thing for the Nazis or for the Stalinists. 80, 90 years ago. That's what's terrifying to me. I think of that book by Francis Fukuyama, The End of History. Oh, we're all done now. The Cold War is over. The Berlin Wall is done. We're done. We're just going to live happily ever after this utopia, this sci-fi utopia. We're going to live the Star Trek utopia where really we're just going to be consumers and just watch TV and play video games and uh, do drugs or whatever and just be eternally in a steady state, no more war. Um, I think we are coming out of the 75 best years in the history of civilization. The greatest generation, as it was called, defeated Hitler and defeated the Japanese in the Pacific theater. And in that, in the 75 years that followed, The world, population growth, life expectancy, health, the agricultural revolution which ended famine. There used to be famines that would wipe out hundreds of thousands, sometimes millions of people. There aren't famines like that anymore. Uh, The eradication of diseases, um, the the expansion of wealth, electrification, running water, Just the sheer measurement of the quantity of life and the quality of life in the three quarters of a century that followed the Second World War, I think that's unparalleled in human history. Obviously it is. The peace, the freedom, the prosperity, even the justice of it, I think the history of the world is as Thomas Hobbes described it. 99 percent of the history of the world life was nasty brutish and short have you ever heard that phrase nasty brutish and short it was part of a longer list let me read the, I, I, the longer list i just want to get it for you because this is what life is like Life outside society would be solitary, poor, brutish, and short. Poor, Solitary, brutish, poor, nasty, and short. That's what life was like for most of time. What was life expectancy for the most of mankind's existence on this planet? 30 years, if that. Even just a couple of centuries ago, life expectancy was 30 years. People were shorter. People were two, three, four inches shorter just from malnutrition. The idea of personal freedom was, was unknown, except for maybe to the very elites in society. You know, I had once the pleasure of, uh, in New York about 20 years ago, visiting, I forget if it was J.P. Morgan's or Rockefeller's uh, apartment on Wall Street. Geez, I can't remember. I'm sorry. It was one of those two gazillionaires. They had this apartment at the top of, I think it was J.P. Morgan. Basically, the richest man in the world had this sky palace at the, t- at the tip of Manhattan. And it was pretty cool. But I thought to myself, you know, an ordinary New Yorker today can travel more has better healthcare, has better food, has more entertainment available to him. Has, has, I mean, obviously you don't have more servants, you don't have more power, but just in terms of the quality of life of an ordinary Joe today was in many ways comparable to a Rockefeller or a JP Morgan or an Andrew Carnegie 100, 150 years ago, it's a fact. And I think this move from perpetual war to what felt like perpetual peace, this move from solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short life to everything's fine, nothing bad ever happens, let's go to Disney again. I think that forgets that we are no better genetically, we're no better morally than past generations. And look at the barbarism that has bubbled up. And I don't just mean the barbarism of the Hamas hate celebrations across the West. Gas the Jews, intifada, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. All of those things mean the same thing, kill the Jews. Gas the Jews is pretty clear. Intifada is an Arab word for a Jewish pogrom, a a riot. And um, from the river to the sea, it means to extirpate every Jew from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea. K- kill every Jew. Get rid of every Jew. That's a, they're saying it. They're not hiding it. And I think it's the height of luxury to say, oh, they don't mean it. They bloody well mean it. And they just showed that a thousand times in Israel. And, and what's so scary is the realization that the last 75 years has been a dream has been an anomaly, has been a temporary mirage, that the real nature of man contains deep evil and that when we see evil, some people will recoil, but others will become excited and cheer it. And I think what scares me the most about the terror attacks in Israel is obviously that the shattering images of cruelty against individual men, women, and children, and babies. But I'm actually more genuinely and deeply and personally scared by the reactions over here. The fact that thousands of Canadians, when they saw what I saw and what you saw, their heart didn't break, their hearts soared, they were exhilarated, they were exuberant, they were cheering... Look at that, these are images not from Gaza, that's from Mississauga. What were they cheering? There is no state of Palestine. Palestine did not get one more square foot of land. They were cheering what happened. What happened was a massacre, a brutal massacre of women and children. That plaza has been nicknamed Gaza Plaza. And where is this from? You're going to show another image there, New York City. You know, we—I was in Dubai recently, as you may know. And I met a rabbi there who said he's never had an anti-Semitic incident, but he comes back to New York, and he he faces anti-Semitism in New York, one of the most Jewish cities in the world. Um, and I don't know if you can see it in that image there, but there was a woman out in, in Times Square there holding up. Uh, a picture of a swastika. Do you think she means it? Of, of course she means it. Why? Why would you think she doesn't? Huh? You know, um, I've been fighting these intellectual battles for for almost twenty years. I remember nine eleven, and I and I was a journalist and a political activist then. And then I remember when the Danish cartoons of Mohammed happened and I remember how gradually our Western institutions of freedom and liberty have been undermined and um, I want to read you if I can find it an article hey I'm gonna put an article in slack can you guys put it on screen and I'm gonna read it um, there was, as you know, North America had our 9 11. By the way, I'm going to show you some images of Abba in Israel, I promise. But can I read something to you first? I read this 21 years ago. Put it on the screen. I think this is the most powerful column I've ever read in my life. I read it 21 years ago. <laughs> Uh, just for context, this was obviously a year after 9-11. Um, there was a terrorist attack, Islamic terrorist attack, uh, in Bali, which um, is sort of like a tourist destination um, for cool Australians, sort of like going to Ibiza for Brits. Bali is where Australians went. Can I read this entire article to you? It's by the Jewiest Jew I've ever laid eyes on, named Howard Jacobson, (laughs) a real lefty at the the Independent, which is a British magazine. I'm just going to read it to you. I'm going to read it to you slowly. It's going to take me about, probably about seven, eight minutes to read it. He said, what did Cain think? You know Cain? Cain and Abel from the Bible? He killed his brother, right? Let me read the story. What did Cain think? We know what he said. He said he was not his brother's keeper and that his punishment was more than he could bear. But what did he think? I'll tell you, he thought he had done a heinous thing. Why invoke brother keeping at this hour unless you understand brother keeping to be sacrosanct? By his shamed denial of the obligations of humanity, the first murderer proclaims the wrongness of murder. In this he is more morally refined than the many who take life. What there is no sign of in his thinking, is that he was right to kill his brother, that it was brought about by the inequality of things. God's preference for Abel's incense and unfair distribution of the goods of Eden or Israel's moving tanks into Hebron, many are the causes of our discontents, but murder in the heart is murder in the harm. So what he's saying is the world's first murderer, Cain, knew it was wrong. And Abel, the victim, his brother, What do we suppose was going through his mind as his brother rose up and slew him? That in some labyrinthine way, it was all his fault that he had brought his brother's violence down upon himself, that there is no doing without our calling for it to be done, is Abel, the first instance in literature, at least, of Jewish self-hatred. As in, if you were murdered, you must have done something wrong. That's really the ideology of the people in the West who said that woman who was raped, that child that was burnt, they must have done something wrong. Otherwise, the Palestinians wouldn't have done that. Don't you see? Let me keep reading. This was written 21 years ago after a terrorist attack in Bali. I'll get back to it now. I've been thinking about Jewish self-hatred in recent weeks, reminding myself that the phrase is out of favor now, properly out of favor, that it smacks of those 19th century German accusations of selbsthass finding confirmation of the detestableness of Jews in the fact that they detested themselves. And out of favor, too, because we all accept that we can't go around accusing Jews of hating themselves every time they demur from the policies of an Israeli prime minister, except, except it seems to me that that depends rather on the vehemence of the demurral. So he's saying, if a Jew doesn't say, I, I denounce what Israel's doing, I hate Israel, if a Jew doesn't do that, well, then they're detestable and they can be killed, too, under this doctrine. Let me keep going. We measure instability of emotion by instability of expression. And if some of the recent expressions of Jewish rejection, not just of Israeli policies, but of the very concept of the Jewish homeland, have not been unstable, a contextual, beyond all reason and all desire for reason, giddy with the thrills of apostasy, ah, the golden calf. I don't know what instability means. But still, who is one man to ascribe a pathology to another man's political convictions? Let me Let me skip ahead. This is a little bit dense. So I will confess to my own, or at least an instance of it, the lily of my personal Jewish self-hate. So here, understand this. I think this is, this is the most important line. It's, it's a bit intellectual. It's a bit poetic. But under, this paragraph here, this paragraph here, I think is the heart of it, okay? So he's talking about pathologies. He's talking about what's wrong with your mind. So he's confessing to what's wrong with his own mind. Get this. the lily of my personal Jewish self-hate flowering before my eyes where they say nothing will flower out of the dust of Dachau. That was a death camp. So this Jew is in a Nazi death camp. And he learns to hate himself. Listen to this. Dachau reader is one of the more congenial places. Imagine what a monstrous bloom I might have conjured from the soil of Auschwitz, but let's not be greedy. It was monstrous enough as it was, and it stinked to high heaven, the stink being what draws you. I doubt I need to school you in the process of the horticulture. You see, you read, you breathe in the evidence of an unimaginable crime done to you and yours, and you can't comprehend that such a thing could come. causeless from nowhere, so you become the cause. There must be a reason, there must be reason in the universe, so you become the reason. It's partly altruism. You cannot bear the thought of some random being, so you supply the system. In that way, you also supply the God. You know, I realize this is a little bit too intellectual and a little bit too dense, but he's really saying, there are some crimes so horrible that you can't process it. He was in a Nazi death camp and he said, how could such a monstrous thing be done to me and my people? How, it doesn't make any sense unless we did something wrong. That's what he's talking about, the the self-hatred. You have to just, to make the world make sense, why did these people hate so much? Why did they kill babies? Why did they take teenagers dancing at a party and rape them and then kill them and then rape their friends next to them and then kill them? How can such evil exist? Well, maybe we did something to deserve it. That's the only way to process this. You know, I had an experience similar to this. I was in Germany and I met some refugees who had escaped ISIS. This was, I don't know, about five or six years ago. Have you heard of the Yazidi people? It's a different religion than Islam or Judaism. It's an ancient religion. There's a small number of these Yazidis in the world. And they they are dark skinned, many of them have blue eyes. It's sort of shocking to see these people. And ISIS hated them deeply, deeply. And they would kill the, the men and they would take these Yazidi women as rape slaves. And this is what the blessing of the ISIS imams and the ISIS commanders, in fact, it was one of the ways they paid their terrorist men. They basically, as you know, ISIS troops were, their terrorists were brought from all around the world. And they were basically told, come fight for the Islamic State, you'll be doing a glorious thing, and we'll give you a woman and so they would kidnap and rape these women as rape slaves and this was approved of by the by the ISIS commanders and i met one of these rape slaves who had fled to germany and she told me the story in fact i did a video on it i don't know if you can find that video do you want to try and find that this would be five or six years ago now and i was Listening to her, and her brother was also there, and there was a translator. And I was listening to this woman tell me about how many times she was raped by ISIS. And she said she lost track after 240 times. And I was, and I was, she was five feet away from me. And... Um, and the same thing that happened to Harold Jacobson here happened, Howard Jacobson happened to me. I thought, that can't be. You're not, I thought to myself, I obviously didn't say it, but I was just, being very candid. My first reaction was, why are you lying to me? You've obviously told me something not true. I don't believe you were a rape slave. I don't believe you were raped 240 times. I, I, I didn't say these things, I'm just confessing to you. She told me the most horrible thing I had ever heard in my life. And I know it's true now, but just in the second when I heard it, I couldn't process it. It was too much. It would be as if you encountered a baby that was burnt on purpose, a baby that was beheaded on purpose by Hamas. You would say, no, this can't be true. You're not telling me the whole story. They must have done something, or you must be lying for some collateral purpose. Obviously, I didn't say that out loud, and I no longer believe that. And, and I don't think confessing it is a sign of my own sin. I think I'm I'm telling you I wasn't prepared for the evil she described to me. Search for it. I don't know if you'll find it. That's when our website route was the rebel.media. Maybe search on the YouTube Uh, on our YouTube page, search for the word Yazidi, Y-A-Z-I-D-I. Go on the YouTube page and search for Yazidi. I had never heard anything so evil in my life. I had never heard anything so shocking in my life. And I like to think I'm sophisticated and worldly. But when I actually heard some, when I actually met a rape slave, I could not process it. It was too much for me. It was too much. Do we have it there? I think that's it. I want to show a little bit of this. This is so horrible. This is so horrible. Can I show it to you? That's what Jacobson's talking about here. Howard Jacobson, when he was in Dachau, he said, how could they, a death camp? He said, we must have done something wrong because such evil just can't make sense. We have to provide the explanation for it. Here, go ahead and play some of this Yazidi interview I did.
1: There was kidnapped on 3rd of August, 2014. And she was two months pregnant. That child is here. He's now 10 months old and there was five months in the hand of the ISIS.
2: If it's not too terrible for them to describe, can they tell me and our viewers what happened on that day when they were kidnapped?
1: We was in Khanasur Shingal city. Uh, they took us.
2: Were, were the families separated, men and women?
1: They separate, they depend on the age. The gents completely they separate from us.
2: I don't want to ask uncomfortable questions, but if the, uh, the family would tell us, what happened to the women who were separated from the families?
1: Our girls, um, they separate from us, six uppers, if they're a little bit looking big, then they belong to the sex-love uh, market. They sell them. In front of our eyes, they sell our sisters, our daughters. We could not do nothing. Some of the girls, well, there was a lot in that time they sell them just for 10 euro
2: the age of six yeah is that because that was the age of aisha yes it- correct
1: 100
2: that's mohammed's wife
1: yes
2: at six years old were children that young raped
1: guarantee guarantee uh, they there has no they, they take them for that case
2: that's the reason you think yes that's did any people try to fight back
1: they come back to this house and they will be kill all of them but this cold come we went there was third floor we went upstairs they has even their machine to cut the woodens they has the the, the 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 swords they had different guns how they cut the, the bodies.
2: Let me understand what you said. Did yeah. you say that there were saws, industrial saws, to kill, to cut people up? Did you? Yes. Is that what you said? He
1: saw it on ice. Yes.
2: Can you please describe? And I know it's terrible, but I, I think the world needs to know. Can you describe that room, and what you saw in that room? <laughs>
1: He says in that room they are like, like lines, instruments. One he will cut their head, one he cut the hand and the leg. And there was on the line big knives, swords, knives and um, Hanjar says this uh, Arab fighting, this is uh, like a ball, this is also kind of sword. And the last one was a machine to uh, cut the wooden, that to cut the people in the half through the wooden machine. And uh, they told them nobody till now was survived from this house, they will be cut in pieces. And they separate them already, they bind the eyes normally, but they got cold, they were lucky. And they told, after you release from here, nobody will touch you more.
2: How did this end? How did you get out of there and come to Germany?
1: It was continue, how they separate us.
0: That was one of several interviews I did. That woman on the left is Sister Hatun, who um, rescues Yazidis, brings them to Germany, They were originally at a refugee absorption camp, but ISIS ran those too. So she had to flee. That Yazidi woman was in Germany at a place where refugees were being absorbed. She had to flee to another place in Germany because ISIS was active in Germany. Um. I show you that because ISIS and Hamas are the same in their tactics. And and that interview, and I had other interviews when I was there in Germany meeting these rape slaves, I couldn't process them. This, and what they did to the boys was equally atrocious, and I, I'm not going to get into that now. I of course didn't blame the woman even in my mind, I thought this can't be true. That was my reaction. I overcame that reaction and listened and, and that was one of the most scarring conversations I've had in my life. Efron, I think we should re-up some of those videos because they're relevant again. The barbarism there, did you hear that about the, the saws and the knives and the cutting off the body parts? That's what Hamas is doing, too. And some people say that can't be true. I don't believe it. It's got to be propaganda because I just can't handle it. That was my internal reaction when I talked to this rape slave. But others are taking to the streets and cheering. That, that mob in Mississauga, they're driving around and celebrating. That's the only news they, they were celebrating. That's the only news they had, is that they had con- committed these ISIS-style atrocities on Jewish women and children. And so the depth of evil in Arabia is echoed by the reactions in Canada and the United States and across the West. Do you doubt that they would commit those atrocities here if they can? And do you doubt that if we stay on our current course that they will? I... um, You know, let me close with uh, a paragraph from that Howard Jacobson article, just to close it out. I'm going to read from the second last paragraph of it. And I'm almost done. It was a little bit too dense to read on a live stream. Then we're going to take a short commercial break, and then we're going to come back with our videos from Avi. So he's been talking about the Nazis and how when you con- confronted with such a horrific Wrong. You think, well, maybe we deserved it. Otherwise, nothing makes sense in the world. So remember, there was these kids, these Australians dancing in a nightclub in Bali, and the terrorists attacked it and blew up dozens of kids. Kids. And here's what Jacobson wrote. I'm going to start from a sentence above that. An obscene act of arrogation, I now realize, making one's culpability the heart of everything. Unjust to one's immortal soul, which wants no part of it, and unjust even to the Nazis and their like, who must be allowed to sin egregiously on their own behalf and go to hell unmolested. In other words, he's saying, How dare anyone try and come up with a a different reason or excuse for what the Nazis did. They didn't ask for a different reason or excuse. Let them proclaim why they did it. Ditto those who blew apart the however many hundreds of kids dancing the last of their lives away in Bali. It behoves us to stay out of their motives. Utterly obscene the narrative of guilty causation which now waits on every fresh atrocity. What else are the dissatisfied to do but kill, etc.? As though dissatisfaction were an automatic detonator, as though Cain were the creation of Abel's will. Obscene in its haste, obscene in its self righteousness, mentally permitting others to pay the price of our self loathing, obscene in its ignorance. For we should know now how self-hate, self operates, encouraging those who hate us only to hate us more, since we concur in their conviction of our detestableness. Here is our decadence. Not the nightclubs, not the beaches and the sex and the drugs, but our incapacity to believe that we have been wronged. Our lack of self-worth. He was saying stop coming up with fake excuses. Stop trying to justify the unjustifiable. Stop taking away their blame. Stop hating yourself. Stop explaining away what they did. They did what they did. And we did not make them do it. His line there, Abel did not create Cain. Anyway, said, I remember that article from 21 years ago. That's what scares me now. The evil scares me, the atrocity scares me, but the reaction to it scares me more. We're gonna take a short commercial break, we'll be right back.
3: I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. After years, I'm finally coming to Canada. I'm a practicing internist and cardiologist. I've trained in epidemiology. The FDA wanted to block the Pfizer dossier for 55 years. 50% of the lives at that time could have been saved. We were at about 250,000 deaths. Red Deer, Thursday, November 9th. Get tickets at canadiansfortruth.ca. See you Thursday, November 9th.
4: Hey, Ben Shapiro here. This November, the Wilberforce Project is bringing me to Canada. If you want to fight the woke machine destroying families, join me in Calgary for my talk,
5: hosted by the Wilberforce Project. Go to benshapirolive.ca for info and tickets. Come on out November 25th. It's all aboard the Freedom Train in Niagara-on-the-Lake.
1: You can check Rebel News for updates and also the Freedom Passport site.
6: Tamara Leach, who led the Truckers' Convoy, will be sharing the stage with some of the finest international recording artists. Like the Chop's Horns from New York City, who's played with Alicia Keys, Stevie Wonder, The Rolling Stones, and many more. Plus, New World Sun just off a European tour, and the legendary R&B master, Leroy Manuel. Get on the Freedom Train with Tamara Leach. Saturday, November 25th at Niagara-on-the-Lake Central Community Center, 680 York Road. Get your tickets today at freedompassport.ca. The Freedom Train is coming. Know your rights. Know your freedoms.
0: Hey, welcome back. It's one forty-eight Eastern Time. I'm sorry, I, I thought I was going to show you a bunch of videos including Avi in Israel. But I, I just started thinking about the atrocities and how we react to atrocities and how the last 75 years of blissful peace um, was an aberration in history and how we like to think that we're beyond history and we are the perfect uh, evolution of people. I don't think we are. And I think this terrorist attack has not only shown how precarious peace and security are in Israel, but how precarious the social contract amongst us in the West is too. I, I don't think that's the case in high-trust societies that are monocultural. For example, I think of Japan, which is only Japanese. There's no mass immigration to Japan. They don't take refugees. And the Japanese people are like a 120 million person family. You don't have this issue in Hungary, which has no, uh, a no immigration policy, Poland. I think when you bring people to Canada and don't ask them the basic questions of, do you renounce violence? Do you renounce a religious supremacy? Do you accept plurality, liberal democracy? When you test for cultural fit and when you bring people over with the goal to absorb them and assimilate them and integrate them as opposed to creating ghettos, that Gaza Plaza, as that Mississauga Plaza is named, they're not integrated. I I fear for what is yet to come in Canada because it's 22 years worse than it was in nine eleven in terms of. The critical mass of evil, thousands of people rallied across Canada in support of murder and torture. Thousands did. And politicians found it difficult to d- denounce even that. I, um, I want to shift gears, I want to shift tone now. One of the things we do at Rebel News is we we do journalism. That's the main thing we do. We do some activism, too. And um, this war deserves independent journalism. And by that I mean someone to tell the other side of the story. If the mainstream media won't even use the word terrorist, if they won't even say how how a Canadian mother was murdered, she died because of the conflict. You can't trust a damn word they say. So, we sent our chief Australian correspondent, Avi Amini, to Israel. And he landed last night. And today he went to Sterot, which is a town just a mile away from the Gaza border. There were Hamas terrorists roaming the streets, shooting to kill on the weekend. Let me show you Avi's. First video from Sterot that he sent to us earlier today. Take a look at this. Aviyamini for Rebel News in
4: Sterot, southern Israel. We're at the site right now of a direct hit minutes ago. Literally five minutes after arriving here in Sterot, we heard a loud explosion. What's happened here today?
5: Today, it's uh, what's happened yesterday. They continue to throw the missile and uh, three people uh, injured from the missile here, and we have uh, 20 rockets that land on the town. This is the reality now, because we're in, in a war.
4: As we drove into this city, a city that only days ago there were terrorists marching the street and butchering anyone in their way, we suddenly heard explosions having to run for our lives. I didn't hear a warning, and there certainly wasn't 15 seconds to get to shelter, but it didn't hit us. It's about 500 meters from where we were, and Unfortunately, there are three victims, one in a critical condition. I was driving in as it happened, as the explosions. I didn't hear any warning. What was that about?
5: I don't know. I think I hear a warning and, uh, and I run away. The problem is that everyone, even you, everyone that stay here, every time that they hear something, they need to one and... Uh, run and, and uh, go under the ground or go to a bomb shelter to save their life. I don't think there was time for me. When we heard the explosions, there was no time. Avi, you in this situation one day. I'm in this situation 20 years. I have seven kids. Seven of my children don't know, know any reality, any other reality. So, Avi, what you suggest me to do the Hamas in the Jihad? If it, they will do it in your, on your family, in your city, what we need to do? We need to crush them, we need to kill them. They are barbaris, they are uh, organized of evil. They are animals, they they killed innocent women and babies, cut their, their, their head. They are animals, they are the new ISIS of the world. We need to destroy them, we need to kill them. The
4: blood of one of the victims and the shrapnel on the wall is evident of what these rockets are able to achieve. Three injured, at least one in a critical condition two in this car and one up against that wall. This is the reality that they're living with every single day across the country, but especially here in Southern Israel. Avi Mini for Rebel
0: News in Sterot, Israel. Hi everybody, thanks very much for watching that. That's our friend Avi. He's actually pumped out a lot of videos in quick order. Um, I'm excited that he's there because There's going to be just general, straight, factual reporting, like what you saw there. But I think a lot of what he's going to do is going to be counter-reporting the lies from the pro-Hamas media. And that's the only way to describe them. Like, if you will not properly identify Hamas as a terrorist group, and if you will not name them when they commit a murder, murder and a torture, what is that by running defense for them? And that's the CBC and the BBC and most of the mainstream media. That's even the New York Times. So Avi's on the ground. We bought him and our videographer Benji one-way tickets there. I mean, we will bring them home eventually, but we don't know exactly how long they're going to stay there. Um, I think it's important journalism. And uh, he just got started. I want you to bookmark the page, thetruthaboutthewar.com. Thetruthaboutthewar.com. That's where all of Avi's videos from Israel will be posted. If you like it, you can... Chip in to help crowdfund. Are there other interesting videos there? I think he sent us four or five already. That was the first one. Um, We got a short one, uh, a lighter hearted one about Tesla. Um, Let's take a look at that one just to change the pace, lighten things up a little bit. Here's a video that I've recorded today about Elon Musk, and uh, I'll let the video tell the story.
4: Mini, in Southern Israel for Rebel News. This video, I want to give a special shout out to Elon Musk, not only for his platform that allows us to tell the truth from the conflict here on the ground in real time, but also for his announcement of free supercharging to Teslas. We actually decided to take a Tesla, to rent a Tesla, because the gas prices here are so insane, so incredibly expensive that now, Thanks to Elon's donation, I guess, to the Rebel News team here, it's actually more affordable to take a Tesla, use the free charge, and travel around the conflict zone. Do you have a message for Elon Musk for his for this?
5: Yes, it's uh, for free for all the Israeli people, yes.
0: Yeah, I, w- I want to thank him about his uh, free charge, uh, and uh, I think it's uh, very appreciated. I want to thank him personally, if, if I can.
5: Thank you, Elon Musk, for the free electricity.
0: The mainstream. Um, just a quick little video there by Avi about Tesla, which is sort of interesting. Um, looks like gasoline is really expensive over there, but I didn't do the currency conversion. Do we have any more videos by Avi? Um, it's uh, almost two o'clock, anyways, which is the time we wrap up here. Uh, I understand that Justin Trudeau uh, just in the last hour did a press conference, and I am no fan of Justin Trudeau, obviously, but I just saw a note that he was being hounded by the media party from the pro-Hamas side, as in they were pressing him to condemn Israel. They won't even use (laughs) the word terrorist. Do we have any clips of that? Here, let's play a little bit. I haven't seen it. I just got a little note about it. Let's take a look. And um, I don't think it is humanly possible for anyone to convince me to be sympathetic towards Justin Trudeau. But But let's take a look here and see what the media sound like scrumming Trudeau. Let's take a listen.
3: Canada supports Israel's right to defend itself in accordance with international law. Hamas is a terrorist organization. And it does not represent the Palestinian people or the legitimate aspirations of the Palestinian people. And it does not represent Arabs or Muslims. Israeli and Palestinian civilians deserve to live in peace, in security, in dignity, and with their human rights, respected. Canada will be providing an initial $10 million in humanitarian assistance to address urgent needs in Israel and in the Gaza Strip, and Minister Hussein will have more details soon. As events abroad unfold, I want to take a moment to reassure the Jewish and Muslim communities here in Canada who are feeling especially vulnerable. I want you to know that we continue our efforts to keep our places of worship and communities safe our government is in regular contact with the leadership of the RCMP and your local MPs are closely liaising with law enforcement. We must always stand united as Canadians. This is something that is core to Canada. We take care of each other, even in the most difficult of times, and we support each other always.
0: Right, that's Trudeau's comments. Uh, Do we have any video of the press scrum afterwards? Because that's what I was told in a quick note was more interesting. If you don't have it handy, don't worry about it. We'll look at it later. The whole idea of the live stream is just we go with what we have handy. Um, Here, I think uh, we might have a video. Yeah, here we go. Looks like he's answering questions here. Let's take a look.
4: Canada has said that all sides in the conflict between Israel and Hamas must follow humanitarian law. You said a year ago, talking about Russia's attacks on Ukraine, that indiscriminate attacks on innocent civilians constitutes a war crime. So with that, what's your position on the siege in Gaza?
3: Well, there is no question that Hamas is a terrorist organization that has uh, brutally murdered uh, innocent civilians, uh, that has uh, chosen to invade Israel. Uh, that has chosen to cause just horrific devastation, and on top of that, has taken hostages uh, in a total and flagrant violation of all international laws and norms. Israel has the right to defend itself in accordance with international law, and uh, we continue uh, to look for ways to support civilians uh, in uh, both uh, Palestinian and Israelis, Uh, and ensure that uh, as many civilians as possible are kept safe during this terrible conflict that is the responsibility and the fault of the terrorist organization known as Hamas.
0: Um, Imagine, and I wonder who that reporter is, imagine comparing Israel's response to a terrorist attack, to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and imagine, imagine implying that Israel's uh, re- retaliation against Hamas is an indiscriminate attack, is and they don't they don't aim uh, any differently between a terrorist and a civilian. I wonder who that reporter is. They're really all interchangeable, aren't they? Um, well, listen, I, I went off on a bit of a tangent today because I just started thinking about how how maybe how thin. The line is that separates us from the barbarity of the past. Sometimes we think history only goes one way. It's always going to get better. Life expectancy is always going to get higher. Poverty is always going to get lower. Happiness will be get higher. The economy will get stronger. We'll all get freer. Everything's going in a irreversible, one way, happy direction. And I think that's not true. And in fact, I think it's the last 75 years has been an anomaly. And I don't want to overstate this because, listen, there were mighty things happening a week ago. China, Russia. I mean, there were a lot of things going the wrong direction. America itself is falling. It's just so clearly uh, the the similarities, the, the commonalities with the fall of Rome. But this feels like it reveals a level of cruelty and barbarism that is biblical. And and I don't know if we have the moral courage to withstand it. It was the greatest generation, they called it, that rose to the challenge of Hitler and saved the world. Would you say that we are the greatest generation now? Would you say that? Would anyone say that? I don't think so. Are our institutions as strong as they were? I think we've seen the proof of that. Economically, morally, diplomatically, I think we're so, spe- Canada, Canada's laughed at internationally. Canada's not even included. There was a statement by a five country group I had never heard of. I've heard of the G7, I've heard of the G20, I've heard of the UN, I've heard of the Security Council, I've heard of the General Assembly, I've heard the Five Eyes, Security Intelligence Network, that's Canada, the UK, Australia, U.S. and New Zealand, the five I's. That's sort of like the super friends, like the inner circle of allies. I've heard of NATO, I've heard of the OECD, I've heard of many groups, but I've never heard of the Quint before. And that's basically the super friends, allies minus Canada. And when they put out a statement the other day condemning this, this joint statement on Israel, we were not even invited to sign it. Because I don't think anyone takes Trudeau seriously. China doesn't. India doesn't. No one does. Um, I mean, the first time Trudeau went to all these international meetings and showed his fancy socks, he said, ha, 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 that's like a fun trick. But surely that was just a trick, right? This just like a little joke you were preparing, uh, like a little gimmick. But you've got something serious to say. Hey, do you have that clip of when we came out of the G20 meeting like a month ago? And he was asked what his contribution was. Do you know the one I'm talking about, Ephraim? So, I want to show you a video from the G20. The G20 is basically the G7 plus other countries like India and Brazil. The G20 is sort of like the the grown-ups. They're not all good guys, but they're but they're fairly large economies. It's a serious, very very serious. These are serious countries that are coming together on serious matters. And Justin Trudeau. Um, was basically shunned. He he was only given the briefest meeting with Narendra Modi of India. He was really marginalized. And so a reporter asked him, what was Canada's contribution here? That's a good question, isn't it? And that's the kind of question that is so generic that anyone, even the intern on Trudeau, even the cook on Trudeau's plane should be able to answer that Well, we, you know, we strengthened our economic ties or we made Canada's position on human rights or whatever. Listen to Trudeau's answer that he actually gave and then come back to my question, why weren't we asked to sign the statement on Israel? This is our prime minister asked what he brought to the table at the G20. The greatest, I think the G20 is an extremely important body. If you're interested in things like economy, War, technology. Um it's cause the G seven are sort of like super are friends kind of thing, but G twenty makes it broader, so you have some rivals in there too. So it's an important gathering. You're not just meeting with friends, you're meeting with all sorts of folks. It could have been a really thoughtful moment. Here's what Trudeau said.
1: What did Canada contributed
3: okay? Uh As always, Canada is a strong voice uh, for inclusion of uh, gender language, uh, inclusion of uh, indigenous uh,
0: reflections. Uh, But what did Canada? (laughs) Gender language and indigenous reflections. What does that even mean? So China was there. India was there. Russia was there, I think. I think Saudi Arabia was there. I think Brazil was there. I got to look at the list of the G20. Let me look it up right now. G20 list. Let me tell you who's with the G20. Argentina, Australia, Brazil, Canada, China, France, Germany, India, Indonesia, Italy, Japan, Mexico, Russia, Saudi Arabia, South Africa, South Korea, Turkey, the UK, the US, and the European Union, and then something generically called the African Union. So it's, it's basically a concentrated UN. Without the tiny countries, um, you you can get 90% of your agenda done with these folks. And because it's not the full UN 200 countries, it's not not cluttered, so to speak. In fact, without checking, maybe Saudi Arabia is smaller than us. But other than that, and Australia is smaller than us. But other than that, I think we're the smallest countries on here. Argentina's bigger. Brazil's way bigger. India is now the biggest country in the world. And we're barely ahead of Saudi Arabia. So what are we even doing in the G20? It's just a historical nod to us. If this group were being built today, we would not be in there, let's be clear. And Trudeau has asked, what did you do? Gender language. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's just so stupid. That's just so stupid. You got nothing else, nothing else to advocate for. You have no other Canadian interests. You got nothing else on your mind. Gendered language and indigenous reflections. What is an indigenous reflection? Uh, what does that even mean? Yeah. So, so gee whiz, why, why wasn't Canada included with the grown ups putting out a serious statement about terrorism? Oh, he's still, he's still doing the fancy socks thing in 2023? That was a party trick for 30 seconds back in 2015, 2016. He's still doing that? That's so lame. You know, I don't know if you remember during the, um, the whole blackface scandal, it, it emerged that Trudeau had done the same blackface shtick in three different decades of his life, in his teens, in his 20s, and in his 30s. That is a long time. And he had the same gear, like he had the wig and he had like shoe polish or whatever it was. I think he had like a kit. I mean, I don't know about your house when you're growing up but when I was growing up, uh, there were four of us kids and we had sort of a trunk where our Halloween costumes were. And you open up for Halloween or a costume party and then you put it back in the trunk and you put it away uh, in the basement because you you only use that like once a year, maybe twice a year, right? Trudeau did his blackface in three, genera- three different decades of his life. He must have had that thing stored in a trunk like my folks kept our Halloween costumes, but... I mean, I I don't know when I stopped Halloweening. Was I thirteen or fourteen or something? Yeah, yeah. Show these show these pictures here. I mean, he had he had gear in three different decades of his life. Because I guess it kept people kept chuckling or something, and no one said, "Yeah, maybe maybe that's a bit of a childish thing." I. Uh, I don't know if you know, I mean, this, the King James Version, of 1 Corinthians 13, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. I think about that a lot. You know, as Jordan Peterson would say, you don't want to be the 40-year-old. You don't want to be the oldest guy at the frat party. Like, he talks about growing up. Like, it's fun to be a kid, and it's fun to be in college, and it's fun to be wild, but at a certain point in time, if you are the oldest man at a frat party, if you're 40 years old, you're super gross. And you got to put away childish things. And Trudeau kept the childish things well into adulthood. And those socks, maybe, oh, he's so playful. He's so childlike. What a breath of fresh air. Does he have anything to say? Um, gendered language and indigenous reflections. Is that, is that working? Anybody? Where are you? President Xi Jinping, Prime Minister Modi, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, nobody, Emmanuel Macron? You're all doing some serious things. Where is everybody? You know those? Do we have any of those viz of Trudeau just wandering around G7s and no one will even stop to talk to him? It's because he became a man, but he did not put away childish things. He's still showing the bloody socks. And the rest of the world, he's he's what they call the dean of the G seven, as in he's the old he's the longest serving leader at the G seven, which is sort of terrifying when you think about it that he's been around that long. But he is like the forty-year-old man, who still goes to college parties, and everyone says, "Who's that oldster?" And he's got all his saying all his old sayings like, um, "Hey, that's whippersnapper." Oh, you, you that? Hey, daddy-o! Like he's so uncool, and he doesn't get it. Yeah, look at this here. So here he is, and and no one will talk to him. No one cares about him. He's wandering around. Yeah, that's one version. I don't know where that one's from. But uh, there's other ones. He just wanders around, and no one even talks to him because he is not a serious person. He's just trying—that's Bolsonaro on his right and Xi Jinping on his left. And neither give a damn what he has to say. He's a child. All right, it's 2.13 p.m. Uh, Let me close by inviting you to regularly get updates for yourself at thetruthaboutthewar.com. We sent Avi Amini and a cameraman, Benji, to Israel on short notice and uh, at some expense. And um, we don't know how long they're going to be there for. Um, Obviously, both have obligations back home, but right now they're doing great work. And if you want to catch up with what they're doing, go thetruthaboutthewar.com. All right, everybody. I've got my show tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern time. You can always sign up at rebelnewsplus.com. That's the video version. It's a, we call it premium content. It's it's uh, rebel news plus is what we call it, and it's eight bucks a month, um, which is not a lot of dough t- to you, I'm sure, but it adds up to a lot for us because we don't get any money from Trudeau, and. Um, You know, the audio podcast is free, but the video stuff, it's eight bucks a month, but that's how we survive. Hey, I want to close with just one thing because uh, I just saw a story by Joe Warmington involving the Toronto police. Yesterday, I tweeted some pictures of a couple of Toronto cops. Can you grab my tweet from yesterday? So um, I believe in a multiracial, diverse police force. I believe that your police force should have basic standards of of competence and physical fitness and intelligence and the right temperament, obviously, so I don't believe in lowering standards for everyone. But I think it's important that you have a police force that can interact with different parts of your community. Um, If there's a large Chinese community, Indo-Canadian community, Jewish community, Muslim community, I think it makes a lot of sense to have someone that has sort of a, a connection. At the end of the day they have to be loyal to to the nonpartisan ethnically neutral state but I, I really like the idea that uh, you can have a multiracial multicultural police force. I think you need to and I've seen what happens in cities that don't really have that. Theres distrust and miscommunication conform Now following the the neutral law and applying the you know your policing powers neutrally is critically important let me say that. But that said, if someone is literally rooting for terrorism, I don't think that I don't think there's a place for them in the police. How could there be? That would be like a, a police officer, let me take it out of the realm of ethnicity, if they kept hanging out at a Hell's Angels bar and not as an undercover cop. If they were hanging out at the Hell's Angels bar, if they were, you know, if they kept going to Mafia hangouts or whatever, that's a, maybe not a great example, but like if, if you were a cop who is expressing your affiliation with a criminal organization, like if you were really into um, the drug cartels, not, and not as like a historical study, but as like uh, an affiliation, maybe you shouldn't be a cop. So here's what I tweeted yesterday. I said, hey, Toronto police, sorry to interrupt, but could you please deploy some different police to protect my synagogue this weekend? Thanks. That would be great. Now, can you click on the individual images? So there's a cop and you can see his name on his Instagram page and he's looking like a cop, special constable, and then click the next image. Oh yeah. Okay. May Allah SWT. I don't know what that stands for. Destroy, destroy the oppressors. May Allah destroy the oppressors. And there's a comparison of Hitler and Netanyahu. And then the next image, here's another cop um, with the Toronto police. And the next image, and then he's got some Palestine violent stuff that I'm not even going to try and decode. So, yeah, back to my tweet. I'm, You know what, I, I, like I say, I believe there should be police officers of different races and religions, but that does not include cops tweeting, may Allah destroy them, them being the Jews. Uh, So today, the police chief of Toronto said, we're going to protect different places. And our friend Joe Warmington put some questions. Give Joe's article handy there. Yeah, right there. Toronto police prepared for potential terror, called for Friday the 13th. And... um, I think Joe's actually got a newer story where he asks about those two cops I tweeted about. Um, I don't know if you can find it quickly, but uh, they basically, I'll just tell you right now, the police standards um, say they're going to uh, look into it and hopefully they will. So yeah, the next story, yeah, yeah, that's it right there. You can see one of the cops I tweeted, Warmington, Toronto. Yeah, there we go. Toronto police investigating two of their own for alleged hate social media postings. And then Joe Warmington's the author, and there's one of the images. Toronto police have all eyes on any hate directed towards the Jewish community right now, but did not expect that would include people from within their own ranks. The police service has been forced to investigate two of its own officers for potential hate material spread on social media. Scroll down just a little bit more. Um, we are aware of the posts and professional standards are investigating, spokesperson Stephanie Sayer said Thursday. The alleged posts from two Toronto Police Service members are disturbing. And another example of the vitriol stemming from the October 7th gen- terror genocide. See, the sun will call the terror genocide. Good for them. They left more than 1,000 dead, many wounded, and more than 150 kidnapped. One is a Toronto Police Constable at 23 Division, and one is a Special Constable in the Community Safety Unit who is employed by Toronto Community Housing. Toronto Police have the task and authority to investigate both. These two officers allegedly posted commentary, blah, 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 across the line at any time, let alone following the murderous slaughter the hands of Hamas. Good for Joe for calling it like it is. Uh, and I'm not saying that those Twitter posts should be a crime. I believe in freedom of speech, even for uh, intolerant speech. Now, by the way, in Canada, there are terrorism laws that if you support certain terrorist entities uh, under certain definitions of support, that's a crime in itself. But as I said before, although I love the idea of, of ethnic cops, I really do because it's like seeing different ethnicities in the armed forces. They're joined in common cause for a patriotic purpose. I find it actually heartwarming to see people of different races and religions in the army. I really do, I don't know how you feel about it. It makes me feel like it's a successful institution that is binding people together on a joint purpose and, and, and giving them uh, a greater thing to believe in that we can all get behind, which is the country. So I love seeing different minorities In the army, I love seeing different minorities in police, as long as they're not lowering standards. You know, you don't want someone who's, you know, short or weak or super fat or whatever. There's a lot of fat cops out there, let's be honest. Um, Like, you don't want to reduce the standards. You want them to be temperamentally suitable. I mean, you're giving these people guns, but um, if their hobbies are tweeting in support of a prohibited prohibited terrorist group, Hamas, if their hobbies are saying may Allah destroy the Jews or whatever that guy said. Um, Yeah, then uh, Houston, we have a problem. Holy moly. All right. Well, uh, I'm sorry I went on sort of a ramble there with that Howard Jacobson piece. I hadn't read it in years. And I suppose that's something you read slowly and carefully and think about. It's not something you rattle through on a live stream. But I think the takeaway from that is, look, there is pure evil out there. It's so evil you will not be able to understand it or process it or accept it. And so your mind will try and excuse it by saying, well, maybe the Jews deserved it. And I had a flicker of that feeling when I interviewed that rape slave who'd been raped 240 times. It was too enormous for me to, I couldn't absorb it. I had to say, no, I cannot bear the thought of living in a world where such cruelty and evil happens. Obviously I didn't say anything. You saw I was very carefully asking questions. But I didn't want to believe that such evil was possible because I didn't want to think that I lived in a precarious world where all the luxury and comfort and happiness and safety and prosperity and freedom that I have come to take for granted was paper thin. And then on this same marble called Earth, this same planet, there are people who would take rape slaves and rape them and buy them and sell them. You heard that Yazidi slave saying women and girls were sold for as little as 10 euros in these slave markets open-air slave markets. That's the world we're in. And it it stunned me. I, it was like I was winded when I heard that. Unfortunately, there were thousands, maybe tens of thousands, God forbid, maybe hundreds of thousands of people who support that barbarity within our own country. And we have to, I think, deport the foreigners who believe in violence And for those who are Canadian citizens, I don't think it's likely to denaturalize them and deport them, but I think we have to integrate them, assimilate them into our Canadian norms. Japan doesn't have to do that because Japan doesn't have mass immigration. Hungary doesn't have to do that. Poland doesn't have to do that because they don't have mass immigration. We chose mass immigration, one million people last year alone. Most of the immigrant applications don't even meet with an immigration officer. It's all done electronically. We're bringing into people, into Canada, people who come from countries that hate us. And of course they come here. It's the land of prosperity. And they enjoy their personal freedom. But when push comes to shove, and they will side with their ancient legacies and when people are shouting, gas the Jews, and from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, they're cheering for their old tribe in their old place, but they're here now. And I don't think we can turn a blind eye to that. I could not and should not have turned a blind eye to that Yezidi rape slave, and I didn't. I didn't. I just had some inner turmoil. And as a country, we cannot shy away from these problems within our borders. All right, it's 2.24. Thanks very much for spending the last 90 minutes with me. Go to rebelnewsplus.com to sign up for my nightly show. Tune in to thetruthaboutthewar.com to see what Avi's doing, and we'll see you tomorrow. Until next time, on behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters, to you at home,
6: goodbye. And keep fighting for freedom. With regard to hateful behavior, I will underline again that violence and hateful acts will not be tolerated in the city. The Toronto Police Service and our Hate Crime Unit will aggressively pursue pursue any alleged or suspected incidents of hate crime or hate-motivated behaviour in our city. There will be no tolerance for any forms of hate or intimidation. Residents are encouraged to report any allegations of hate-motivated incidents to police for investigation please always call 911 for emergencies. For incidents that do not have an immediate safety concern, please call our non-emergency line and please call so we can investigate. Should you have information that you wish to remain anonymous about providing, please call Crime Stoppers. We are continuing to monitor this situation here in Toronto and beyond. We will deploy our officers to ensure residents feel a sense of safety and security.